All right, kids, kids. I have your attention, kids. And the young at heart, too, sure, right. Oh, okay, kids. Next week, for, for the kid part of the service, we're doing this little activity called uh, Stump the Chump or Stump the Pastor. You, you, you can choose how you want to say that. Uh, Stump the Pastor. Here's what I need you to do, okay? I need you to bring an object from your home. It could be a toy. It could be something from the kitchen. No knives, please. Uh, it, could be, it could be anything, really, but it has to be small enough that I could put it in a bag, and then during the sermon, or maybe before the sermon, I'll pick one of the objects out. And then this is the stumping part. I've got to figure out a way to connect whatever you brought with the sermon. Okay? So I'll be preaching and thinking, you know, you brought me a dinosaur. How do dinosaurs fit into heaven? Well, we're talking about heaven next week, by the way. Are there dinosaurs in heaven? Yeah, I don't know. We'll see. But um, so, so bring an object to church. If you forget, it's okay, of course. But if you bring an object, we're going to have a bag in the foyer right out here. So parents, help the kids find that bag. You'll put your item in the bag. Maybe you label it so you get it back, right? I don't know. Maybe that's important too. But, you know, and then we'll bring the bag up for the sermon. I'll pull one out and then I'll try to, you'll stump me or not. We'll see. So, all right. Kids, can you do this for me? We're good? Okay. So obviously I'm not going to pull out all of the items, only one. So only one of you get the fun of seeing me try to figure out your item. But, all right. All right, I invite you to take out your Bibles and your notes and go to Revelation chapter 20. This is the home stretch. Okay, we've got the millennium today and we've got the next two weeks in heaven. Heaven's got to be one of the most exciting things to preach about, but also one of the, most, one of the hardest because I haven't been there. Uh, and yet we have this wonderful description that we will be looking at in the next couple of weeks. Today's the millennium, though. Now, the millennium, Revelation 20, has got to be one of the hardest passages in all of the Bible because what you do with Revelation 20 affects a lot of things. And I've, I've tried to talk, I'm, I'm going to talk about some of those things today, but it just touches on a lot of things. In fact, during cross-training after the sermon, uh, I'll ask you, how, how do you think your view of the millennium impacts your life? I think it does, and I want to I look at that today and uh, get into it a little bit. So let me just say this. I try never to preach over people's heads. I, I don't like doing that. If I'm going to give you something deep, I want to give you a way to hold on to it. You know? But I'm just going to say the millennium is a complicated thing, and uh, we're going to dig into it, and so it's like fasten your seatbelts, okay? Let's just say that. Fasten your seatbelts. Uh, next week we're talking about heaven, uh, but this week could be rough. So let's, let's get into it. Revelation chapter 20. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who was the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. 
And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have a part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand, for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown in the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. We'll pause there. There are three main views of the millennium, and I'll just sketch them briefly. I had a theology professor when I was, uh, was before I went to Bethel Seminary, I was at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and I had a professor, he was excellent, and he taught all three of these millennial views as if they were true. You know, like here's the biblical evidence. And by the end I was like, well, I could be a post-millennialist, sure, <laughs> you know. And by the end of the amillennial thing, I was like, I could be amillennialist, you know, I, I could do that. Because it's like th- there's evidence for all of it, even though we have a very specific view. So I'm going to give you the three views, and then I'm going to narrow in on ours. If I was going to preach all three of them, we'd be here all day, but it would be very interesting, for some of you at least. All right. <laughs> here we go. Post-millennialism. Post means after. And, and, and the reason it's called post after millennialism is because it says Christ will return after the millennium is over and, and the millennium is actually a time of, of peace and justice. Postmillennialists would teach that the gospel is going to keep going out on the earth, it's going to reach the nations, and, and basically the world's going to be Christianized. A lot of people are going to accept the gospel. As a result of that, we have this amazing peace on earth, this, this justice, this righteousness. And at the end of that time, that golden age, Jesus will actually return. And then he will bring in the new heavens and the new earth. That's postmillennialism. Now, postmillennialism wasn't held by the early church fathers. This isn't, this isn't an ancient, ancient view. It is old. And in fact, you've got, uh, you've got people in the early American days that held this view and preached it and proclaimed it. Jonathan Edwards, I believe, is one of those. Uh, you know, a good theologian that he is. This view, though, lost a lot of ground during World War I. Can you guess why? Because at that time, people are going, no, no, no. The world's not getting better. People are dying. The world is at war. And, and so the, the, the cultural conditions kind of squashed that view. Now, the view's still alive today. I'm not saying it's not alive because, again, culture in the world doesn't determine biblical truth. I mean, for goodness sake, that's not how it works. But I'm just saying that that whole era kind of pushed that to the side a bit for a lot of people. 
And so that's not the most popular view probably today, but there are a lot of people that hold to a post-millennial view. Next you have uh, the amillennial view. This is uh, the, the view that says there is no literal millennium. Christ actually rules in the hearts of Christians as the gospel is spread. In other words, you're living in the millennium right now. Right now, if you believe in Jesus, he's ruling on the throne of your heart. And, and, and it's, an, it's an amazing rule. But, but there is no literal thousand-year reign of Christ. I think a lot of the Lutheran church holds this, as far as I know. And uh, again, very popular view today. And it is, it is based on some, some views of the covenant we're going to talk about in a minute. But again, uh, not, not a bad view. Then there is premillennialism. Oh, I could say amillennialism is probably as old as maybe the 4th century. You know, around that time, amillennialism came into being. Uh, premillennialism happens to be the oldest view of the three. Premill is where the EFCA church, this church, stands as a premill church. In fact, I don't know if you were around a few years back when the, the, all the talks about, about updating the statement of faith, if you were around for that time, there was a big debate among pastors on should we get rid of the pre-mill statement in the statement of faith? Could you be a mill and be a licensed pastor in the free church or, or a member? Could you do that? And, and for a while there was a little bit, of, it seemed like there was a little bit of back and forth there. What are we going to do here? And, and there was a lot of pastors, pastors that I knew of that said, wait a minute, hold on. If you get rid of a pre-mill view, you're taking the Bible and, and you're not treating it literally. Now, I don't think that's a very fair argument because a lot of revelation is figurative, right? <laughs> There's a lot of figurative numbers. However, I do think the pre-mill view makes the best sense of the Bible. And so the free church kept the pre-mill statement in the statement of faith. That, that's part of who we are. And I think it's the best interpretation of this whole thing. So pre-mill, pre-millennium is Jesus will actually come back to earth and he's actually going to reign for a thousand years. So, so pre means before. Jesus will return before the millennium starts. End of the tribulation. Defeat the Antichrist. Defeat the beast and the false prophet. Throw them into the lake of fire. And then he starts his thousand year reign on earth where he is the king. Now, there's a couple things about covenants that this connects to. If you like studying the covenants, you're going to love this. So, okay, uh, if you're in the notes there, I want you to look at God. So, so in history, in biblical history, God has made agreements, promises with people, with human beings. And we call these covenants. We call marriage a covenant. It's a, it's a binding agreement. And so God has made covenants with people. I want you to see a couple of them and then think about how these relate to the millennium, because it's very important. Uh, look at Genesis 15. We're in Revelation. You're going to go back to the first book of the Bible, Genesis 15. And there's a couple places that talk about God's covenant with Abraham. I want to focus in on Genesis 15, 18 through 21. Now, you remember that God said to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. And I'm going to bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you. And then he says, all nations, all, everyone's going to be blessed through you. 
And, and we understand that when God said that to Abraham thousands of years ago, he meant Jesus will one day come and bless everyone. Okay? Everyone will be blessed through you. But then you have this promise that I want to call your attention to. Just, just part of the promise. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land from the river Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Kadamites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. And many scholars have pointed out that it doesn't seem like Israel has ever occupied that much land. They've never had the exact boundaries talked about in that verse. And so if they've never occupied that much land, does that mean God is going to give them that much land at a future date? And it brings up the question, does God have to keep his promises to Abram and to Israel even today? Is he obligated to keep those promises? Now you remember, when he's making these agreements with Abram, what was Abram doing? Something you never want to happen. If you're making a covenant on your wedding day, you don't want this to happen. Abram was sleeping. Okay? If the groom is sleeping, wake the guy up, right? But Abram is fast asleep, and, and God cuts these animals. So Abram sets up these animals, because that's what you do when you cut a covenant. You cut it. And, and you separate these animals, and, and, and the two parties walk through the, the cut-apart animals. And the idea is, if I break my side of this covenant... May what happened to these animals happen to me. I'm not going to break my word. I'm going to do what I said. Abram was asleep and God passed through the animals. One person did. One person, God, not Abram. So you start to say, it sounds like an unconditional covenant. And yet I could also show you places in Genesis, which I won't today because we're going to look at a lot of other verses too. I can show you places in Genesis where God says that God is going to keep his covenant because Abraham has obeyed. Those are what the verses say. I'm going to keep my covenant because Abraham has obeyed me. And then you go, wait a minute. Abraham's obedience means that you're going to keep your part of the covenant? How does that work? So I could point you to verses that sound like the covenant is conditional. You do your part, I do my part. I could point you to other verses that make it sound like the covenant's unconditional. God will do it no matter what you do. He promised it and he will do it. What will we do with though? What will we do with that? And this is where I think if you're a mill, you can come in here and say, God doesn't owe Israel anything. They've rejected him over and over. They rejected Jesus. They crucified Jesus. God owes them nothing. The millennium is happening right now for every believer, Jew and Gentile, that gives their heart to Christ. Okay, I, I, I can see that. My view of covenant, though, if this is helpful, you know, if you're going to push me and say, is the covenant conditional or unconditional? Does God have to do it? Or, or can people break it? I view the covenant as unconditional with certain conditions. Now you say, well, that's not fair. You're just sitting on the fence there. That's not fair. Uh, let me give you an analogy of what I mean, though. I think the covenant is like a train, and the train is rolling. 
God said, I'm going to do this. And if God says he's going to do it, then he's going to do it. Now the conditions part come in where you ask the question, will you be a part of this? Do you want to be on the train or off the train? So you had the people of Israel, right? And, and, and God was giving them the commandments. And, and if you didn't abide by this, you could be cut off from the people of Israel. They're kicking you out. You're out of the covenant. So, so there's this idea where you can push somebody off the train. That's the condition part. But the train is still rolling. And everything that God said he's going to do, he is going to do. The question is whether you're a part of it or not. Abram, are you part of this? Well, Abram, you obeyed me. You believed me. I counted that to you as righteousness. You're in. You're in. But if Abraham didn't believe, would God have suddenly said, well, now my whole plan's derailed? No, the train is still moving. That, that, that's my best take on unconditional covenants. You can get cut out of it. It'd be better if you believed and were in, though. Now, let's look at David. Let's look at David for a second. In 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, verse 12. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. My my Bible, Blue Bible here is 219, page 219. We can start at the middle point of verse 11. This is God talking to King David. He says, The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body, I will, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. He will be my son. When he does wrong, I'll punish him with the rod of men, with the floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me, and your throne will be established forever. Now part of that, you could see part of that in the reign of King Solomon who would carry on the reign. And, and certainly there was punishments mentioned here. But there's this forever thing going on. Solomon didn't reign forever. There's something bigger happening here. And so this passage and many others in the major prophets and minor prophets allude to a golden age where God is going to set up his kingdom and all the nations will know it. They'll see it. So my view is, and the premillennial view is, God made these promises. He's going to fulfill them. And ultimately, these land promises, these ruling a kingdom on earth promises, get fulfilled when Jesus takes over as king of the earth. He will reign. So, now that I've said all that, and I hope I haven't made it too complicated. Let's talk about what the millennium is like. What is the nature of the millennium? And I've got six or seven points here uh, that we're going to go through just quickly on what is the millennium like. A, the nature of the millennium is, it, the government is a theocracy. 
with Christ as king. Theocracy is a, a, a God-centered uh, government where, where God himself is king. And that's the millennium. Christ is going to rule. There's different verses that proclaim this. Uh, if, if you were to look at Psalm 2, verse 7, I'll just read it for you. It says, I'll proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you're my son. Today I've become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. I will make all of the nations your inheritance. So if Jesus, the Son, is going to inherit the earth, the millennium would make a very obvious time when that's going to happen. For a thousand years, Jesus will rule over the nations on the earth. Secondly, it seems that the center of Jesus' government will be Jerusalem. That's Isaiah 2, verse 3. It says, Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the God, word of the Lord from Jerusalem. There's these references to Jerusalem being the center of this amazing kingdom that's going to happen on earth. So the center seems to be Jerusalem. Number three, or, or part C, the twelve apostles will have authority over the twelve tribes of Israel. Remember this, Jesus said this to the apostles. He said, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who follow me will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So Jesus promised them they would have a ruling function in the kingdom to come. Number four, or part uh, D, I have numbers, I think you have letters in front of you. Uh, The church will also have a governing role. Revelation 5 says you've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Now I'll call your attention to something here in in chapter 20. If you look at the people coming back to life, I'm looking at verse uh, 4, at the end of verse 4, the people that hadn't worshipped the beast or the image and not received his mark on the foreheads of their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So in Revelation 20, it says specifically that the people that Jesus is raising back to life are the people that were beheaded during the tribulation. So now you say, wait a minute. And then it just it goes on. You know, there, there's no like, I don't read in, in particular like where the church is here. I don't see it. I see that the first resurrection is shared by people that were killed by the beast. Okay. My take on this is you just have to look at other scriptures to see that we're going to take part in the first resurrection. It says um, in verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come back to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. So you say, which one do I have a part of? Do I have a part in the first resurrection of people who are going to reign during the millennium? Or do I have a part in the second resurrection? Well, if you have a part in the second resurrection, it says about you, um, it kind of is is assumed. Again, this is just assumed. Verse 6, it says, The second death has no power over them. Does that mean if I was part of the after-millennium resurrection that the second death would have power over me? kind of sounds that way. So my, my thinking is that this promise for the people that were the martyrs, is just a special promise to highlight what they have gone through in the tribulation. I think it's meant to encourage them. 
I think it's meant to refer back to them and say, you know what, you made it. Now you get to reign with Christ. But we have many other verses that say we will reign with Christ too. I pointed out one of them in Revelation. There's more that say the church will reign with Christ. So I would insert the church right here into this as well. I don't think it makes sense to hold off till the end of the millennium. Because the end of the millennium resurrection seems to be much more difficult in the judgments coming to those people. Okay? So, based on other verses, it looks like we are here right at the beginning of the millennium. It looks like this is when we receive our resurrection bodies. You looking forward to a new body? This is when you get it. I remember the first time I was reading this stuff, like really realizing it, and I thought, I thought I got a body when I died. You know? I die, I'm with Jesus, new body. You know, boom, that's how... No, it's, there is a waiting. There's a waiting. And when Jesus returns and ushers in his kingdom, that's when we all get new bodies. This is the resurrection. Okay, that leaves one really other sticky subject. The next part, uh, E. This is hard. I'm just telling you it's hard. <laughs> Presumably, the subjects of the kingdom. So, so you say, okay, remember that part I read where Satan it gets let loose and he deceives the nations and they all gather together to fight and they surround the city God loves, which I think is probably Jerusalem. And uh, it says they're like the sand on the seashore. Well, where do you get enough people that it looks like a beach, you know? How do you get that many people during the millennium? It won't be the resurrected believers that are going to fall for Satan. We're not going to fall for Satan. Who are these people? Where did they come from? Good question. Would you tell me? <laughs> um, presumably, the subjects of this thousand-year reign are going to be Jews and Gentiles who survived the tribulation and entered the millennium with earthly bodies. Now listen to me. If you believe in a pre-trib rapture, that is, before the Antichrist comes, God is going to take away all believers. You know there's a new Left Behind movie coming out? Like, Is it out today? I think it's out this weekend. Right? That whole movie is predicated on this idea that, that when the tribulation happens, God is going to rapture us out. And uh, have I told you the trick I played on my pastor friend one time where we left empty clothes in the pastor room? Anyway, um, I think I did share that before. I think I've shared that. But um, <laughs> the idea is when you get raptured, your clothes will be left and you'll, you'll go to be with Jesus, you know? So leave your clothes somewhere conspicuous at the, at the kitchen table and see what your spouse does. I don't know. You know, see what happens. Um, for those that didn't hear it, uh, basically, the, the pastorals, I was an intern at a church, and what we did was we, we, we called the worship pastor out of the room during the staff meeting, and we all took out these clothes we had brought with us and put them in the seats, and then we all ran out of the room, and then when he came back in, he saw the clothes sitting at the table, you know. <laughs> and then he ran out of the room and looking, you know, and he said he knew it was a joke, but I don't know. I, I think we got him. I think we got him. So, um, any case, in any case, if you believe that you will be raptured away before the tribulation, which is an extremely popular evangelical view today, then these people would presumably be Christians Christians, people that believed in Jesus during the tribulation maybe, and they've gone in to the millennium in their physical bodies. 
They made it through the tribulation. The Antichrist didn't kill them. They lived into the millennium. They had kids, and those kids had to make a decision. Am I going to believe in Jesus or not? And many of them do not. That would populate the millennium, millennial kingdom. Now, if you're like me, I've got to admit, if you believe that, that the rapture is going to happen when Jesus returns at the end of the tribulation, and we're going to meet him at that point when it's all over, that, it's harder on me, in my view, to tell you the truth, because then the question is, where do these people come from? Because if Christians are there through the whole tribulation, and Jesus returns, and we meet him in the air, and then Jesus comes down and starts ruling, then don't we get resurrected bodies at that time too? You'd kind of think so, unless maybe we don't. You know, maybe we don't get resurrected bodies until we die during the millennium and then, and then the resurrection happens for us too. I, I'm just saying there's, there's a little bit of silence here and we're trying to fill in the gaps. But I will readily admit if you're pre-trib rapture, it's a lot easier to figure out who these people are. We'll say that. All right. I've lost half of you. You look glazed over. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. Lastly. We could talk about this during cross-training, too. That'd be kind of fun. Um, lastly, this is a time of great justice, righteousness, and peace with Christ as king. It, it, you know, I'm not going to read you all of Isaiah 11 there, but if you ever wanted to look at Isaiah and other places, it, it's a picture of a beautiful golden age, and you're like, this is an ideal earthly condition. Isaiah chapter 11. You ever read about how the lion will lay down with the lamb? Right? Millennium. It's different during that time. The peace is amazing. The peace is amazing. And you, and you might guess one of the reasons the peace is amazing is not only because Jesus is ruling, but because Jesus had an angel bind Satan for a thousand years. And when Satan gets out, at the end of the thousand years, Satan's released from prison. This is verse 7. And he gathers nations. This is, this is really astonishing to me because what it's pointing out is look how easily people are deceived. How do you gather that many people to oppose King Jesus? Like, I couldn't even imagine that. Like, isn't this what the world is longing for today? Peace, justice, righteousness. Even if, we don't rec- even if people don't recognize Jesus as King, don't people long for a world free from poverty and evil. And this is what Jesus is giving them. And there's these people that number like the sand on the seashore. And those people are like, not good enough. I don't want this Jesus. Don't want his rule in my life. How, how the flesh tricks us and tells us that, I mean, I just can't believe how self-deceived people are. Because it looks like when Satan is released from his, from his abyss, this, this pit that he's locked in, it's like he goes out, and just like that, he just gathers people together. Hey, I know you're tired of Jesus' reign. Let's get together. I, I know this has been just grating on your nerves forever, this king. Let's get together and oppose him. And how quickly... And shockingly, he gathers all of these people 
to oppose him. I, I, I think you look at the millennium and you say, look at the human heart. And look how fickle we are. Even when we've been given everything we've ever longed for and say we want, it's never good enough and there's still people that will oppose Jesus as king. And then Satan gets let loose and he's just like, come on, let's get together and do this. And they're like, we're in, we're in. Gog and Magog is a reference to Ezekiel. We'll talk a little more about that maybe during cross training. But he gets these people together, opposes Jesus, and like a fiery prophet of old, fire is called down from heaven and consumes them. There's no battle here. They're completely deceived to think they can actually oppose Jesus, and they're just dealt with. Now, let me say this at the end here. Um, I, I just want to talk about a few points of application, okay? A, a few like, what do we do with this? The millennial reign, what do we do? Number one, I think we look at Satan's amazing power to deceive people. I think we look at also people's depravity in, in rejecting Jesus' righteous reign. But, but I want to call attention to the reality of spiritual warfare. Look at Satan's primary tactic. I, I don't read here in this passage that the devil just overpowers all these people and is like, you're going to do my will now, we're going to fight Jesus. I don't read that. The devil is powerful. I don't read that. What I read here is, he's deceived them. That he is so cunning that it doesn't take long for him to fool people into thinking it'd be better to resist Jesus as an army than to follow him as subjects of the kingdom. Look at his amazing power to deceive people. And then realize, if that's, one of his, if that's his main end time strategy, what do you think one of his main strategies is today? To deceive people. To make you think things that are not true. That's what he does. The other part of spiritual reality I'll call your attention to here is that um, we need to look at God's complete authority over Satan, like in verses 1 through 3, you know, the angel comes down from heaven. And of course, the devil is an angel as well. But this angel is coming down with authority from God with the key. Keys represent authority, by the way. The key to the abyss. And he has this big chain. And he, and he seizes the dragon. He seizes Satan. I mean, this angel just takes him and throws him in this abyss. And, and it's because the angel has the authority of God behind what he's doing. Satan can't resist that. He can't oppose that. There's no, there's no chance for him to get out of that. He's in the abyss because that's where God wants him. And for a thousand years, that's where he stays. Look at God's complete authority and power over Satan. And realize that authority is here today. Jesus already beat Satan at the cross. It's been done 2,000 years ago. It, 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 when Jesus said it's finished, it truly is finished. Now, he's not tossed into the lake of fire yet, but he's done for. He's done for. And then lastly, let me say this. We have, that is, believers have been given 
kingdom authority. We've been given authority. Would you turn to Matthew 16? One more passage to look at. Matthew 16, 19. Matthew 16 is that amazing passage where, where Jesus asked the disciples, who's the son of man? Who, who do people say I am, right? Some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Some say Jeremiah. That's all very flattering. What do you say that I am? Who, who am I? And Jesus is asking the disciples, and Peter answers them and says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus in verse 17 said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, but this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. I will tell you that you are Peter, that means rock, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. And then a short time later, Jesus starts talking about his death, and Peter says, Never, Lord, this shall never happen. You're not going to die. This isn't going to happen. You're going to rule. You know, that's what Peter's thinking. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. You know, so Jesus had this amazing, Peter has this amazing moment where he confesses Christ, and then this terrible moment where he says, No, no, Jesus, you're not going to die. And then Jesus calls Peter Satan. Um, that's, that's hard. That's a, that's a hard spot right there. He says, I'm calling you Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now the Catholic Church says at that moment, Jesus made Peter the Pope, right? He's going to build his church on Peter. But I think, and I look at, I look at 1 Peter, right? We are, and Paul says this too, we are living stones, right? The church is living stones. We are rocks in this building called the church, and so my take on this is that Peter says, I'm going to build on this rock. And I think the rock is the church. It's believers that confess that Jesus is the Christ. When you confess Jesus is the Christ, you become part of the church. You're one of the rocks. Who's the cornerstone? Jesus. He's the main rock. He's the cornerstone. But you are living stones. Some people don't go for the stone analogy and they say really it's just Peter's confession is the rock. But I think it's a confessing people. We are the rocks. And the gates of hell will not prevail against us. And you probably heard people say this, but gates aren't offensive. Gates are defensive. Gates keep people in and keep the invaders out, right? If you've seen any medieval movies, you know how this works. If you've seen Lord of the Rings, again, you know how this works. The army attacks the gates. They're on the offense. And Jesus says, this is the church. We've been given the keys to the kingdom. We've been given authority. Keys, keys let people in or keep people out. And Jesus says, I'm giving you that kind of authority and I'm putting you on the offensive. So start attacking the gates of hell and start bringing people out. Start bringing people out into the kingdom. Start sharing the gospel with people and you're going to lead them out. And if you free people, if you loose them on earth, they'll be loosed in heaven. If you bind people on earth, they'll be bound in heaven, you know? The church has this authority to say, this is the gospel. Over here is a false gospel. We're, we're binding that. That's false. It's a false teacher. We reject it. 
over here is the true gospel, that Jesus died for your sins. He was raised from the dead. Do you believe that? And we give that to people. And when we give that to people, we're assaulting the gates of Hades and leading prisoners out. And this is the authority you've been given. You've been given the authority to pray in Jesus' name, right? To pray over people, to, to release things, and, and to pray, no more will I be you know, in bondage to this sin. I'm praying that God releases me. I'm praying that His will is done on earth as it is in heaven, and God doesn't want this for me. So we pray with authority. Do you pray with authority? Do you realize that God has given you these keys? In some circles, I think binding and loosing has more to do with people binding and loosing Satan. You know, binding him. But I tell you, I know of no scripture that teaches to bind Satan like that. I know of no scripture that says I'm supposed to address Satan like that. I mean, I've heard people say that. I bind you, Satan. Show me the verse where I'm supposed to talk to him or that he's listening to me. And if I bound him, how long would he be bound? Jesus says he binds the strong man. And during his earthly ministry, he did bind Satan. And he did free lots of people that were demon-possessed. But I see nothing in the Bible that says this is our calling to bind Satan. What I see is we're supposed to assault the gates of hell and free people with the power of the gospel and pray that God would take the blinders off of people the God of this age, right, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Take the blinders off. Help them see the light. Christians that are struggling with sin, to gather around them and pray over them. That they would have power against They'd be filled with the Spirit. That the Spirit would control them completely. We've been given authority. Do we use it? Do we use it? I, I hope that this encourages your prayer life. I hope that it strengthens you and, and you say, Look at all that I've been given. Look that Hades is on the defensive right now. Let's move. If ever you're tempted to think that the church is like this get through the week kind of thing, get to Sunday, we, you know, it's just hard. It, it can be hard, but it's only hard because we're actively fighting the battle. I want you to think of it this way. Football analogy. I try to do them too much, but we love football here. Uh, I heard Tony Evans talk about this once, and it was a great. He was talking about the keys of the kingdom, right? And he said, in football, you've got football players that are big and muscular, and you've got these scrawny refs, referees. Now, in life, we're, we are fighting against spiritual forces of darkness. Satan is active in this world, he's deceiving people. We have the truth. We have the major offensive weapon, the Bible, the truth. Give people the gospel. Pray for them. Release them. <sighs> Satan is a powerful enemy. But we've been given authority. And in a football game, in a football game, referees boss around huge, muscular football players. I mean, really, if it really was reality, I mean, if this was like no holds barred, it would be like the referee would say, you know, uh, uh, 
pass interference in the full prayer and say, no way, and just knock them down, you know? But you touch a ref and you know what's going to happen to you? The fine you're going to get? Getting tossed out of the game? Depending on what it is, you get tossed out of the NFL, you're done. You, t- you lay a hand on that ref, you are in huge trouble. That ref has authority. And do you realize that God has given you authority? Authority to assault the gates of hell. Bring people out. Assault the gates in your communities where you say, you know what? I don't like this poverty here. I don't like these people living in bondage to sin. I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to become their friends and, and, and I'm going to share the gospel with them. I'm going to serve them and love them. You're assaulting the gates of Hades with your authority that God has given you. And yeah, I know Satan is strong and I wouldn't want to fight him one-on-one, but with the authority Jesus has given me, I need not fear him. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples. And if Jesus has that much authority, the authority to throw Satan into an abyss for a thousand years, and he's saying, I'm taking all of my authority and I'm saying to you, go do this. Spread the gospel, teach people to obey me, do it. That is authority. Taken you past time. Let me read the rest of the passage and uh, close it out here. A lot of things I could say about the end of this passage, but here we go. Then I saw a great white throne, this is verse 11, and him who was seated on it, earth and sky fled from his presence, there was no place for them. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is a second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Two books, maybe more books. There's a book of deeds that record everything everyone has ever done and they're judged according to what they've done, which implies that the punishment that people receive from God will fit the crime. And then you've got the book of life, which is the most important book. Because if your name is in it, that's entrance to heaven. If your name is not in it, It's the entrance to this lake of fire. So let me just say once more, our message is that Jesus has died for all mankind. The message is for everyone. The promise is for everyone. Will you accept it? Will you bow your heads and close your eyes now? I feel like I should ask, is there anyone here that if you have not accepted Christ's salvation, I mean, he offers that to you this morning. He died for you. He paid the price for you. When he died on the cross, he paid for your sin and my sin. You can accept that and begin this new life with him or reject it and not be in the book of life. So I'm just saying, if that's you and you need to pray this morning because you've never given your life to him, you've never asked for his forgiveness, will you look up at me and we will pray together this morning? If that's you. I see you. Anyone else?
All right. Okay. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I know that I've done many things to break your laws and your ways. But I'm thankful today because I believe that Jesus paid the price for me on the cross. He saved me. So please forgive me and make me a new person. And help me now to follow you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.